Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, Grace and Peace to you. Well, good morning. If you uh, were in the commons looking for John Guest this morning, wondering where he is, he's at large. <laughs> the minister at large. Yes, indeed. He's living up to his title today. He's actually in Palm Springs, California. Poor guy. And uh, John is there ministering to a community of people, sharing the gospel with them. And so what I'd like to do this morning as we pray, let's include that ministry with our ministry, shouldn't we? And we're a part of a church that's much bigger than what's gathered just here in this place. We're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, and it stretches from here all the way to Palm Springs, certainly, and, and beyond that. So let's pray not only for John, but for the church gathered there, and, and let's pray that God would teach us from his word this morning. Bow your heads with me, please. Father in heaven, we are grateful to be a part of this church that no longer has to be enslaved to fear, but rather is set free to live for and serve the King of Kings. And we thank you, Lord, for our friend John Guest, our brother, and uh, his commitment to your word and to the gospel. And we pray, God, that as John finds himself in California today, that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit. And much more, Lord, we pray that the gospel would be powerful to penetrate hearts, and to change lives this morning. So use John to that end, Father. And we know, Lord, your church doesn't only exist here in this place. It doesn't only exist in California. Lord, it spans the city. It spans this nation. It spans the globe. God, it even crosses over time. And we're grateful to be a part of that church, God. And we, as we open your word now, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. And that we would truly know you deeply and richly. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I'd like to tell you this morning just a little bit, just a smidge about some of the church history of the church in America. Let me take you back to the early 1800s. Take you to Charleston, South Carolina. And there in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a community of Presbyterian churches And these Presbyterian churches borrowed some of the practices they brought with them from the Church of Scotland. And one of those practices pertained to communion. And the practice was this. They used communion tokens. In order for someone to come to the Lord's table, they had to have a communion token. Here's how you got a communion token. You would go to a preparatory service, a service of preparation, during the week leading up to the time when you were going to have uh, the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And get this, these preparation meetings were kind of intense. So you'd show up to this preparation meeting, and you would get asked questions. You were interviewed for communion. Maybe we should do this, huh? (laughs) And so you would sit down with someone, and they would ask you about your piety. How pious have you been? during the past week or weeks or months. Wow. 
And they would ask questions about your, your Christian discipline. How faithful are you reading the word? Are you, are you praying fervently? Are you giving to the church? Hey, maybe we really should do this. Some of you think I'm serious. And then you would get a token based upon your preparedness to receive the Lord's Supper that particular week. Now, we cannot talk about the early 1800s in a place like South Carolina without also acknowledging that there was something happening in the African-American community in this place. Of course. And, and the African-Americans who were part of the church, well, they had a slightly different experience. They had a separate service of preparation. They didn't go to the same service of preparation as the white folks did, the African-American folks. The slaves went to another service, and then they would be given a coin upon their answers of the questions, but their coins were different. You see, the white folks would receive a silver token, and those who were slaves would receive a pewter token. And if somehow a silver token ever got into the hands of a slave, it is known that they were treated very harshly. They were, they were beaten, they were disciplined for having that silver coin. And then you would get to the communion service, and in the rare instances where there was a multiracial service together, the whites would be served first at the table, and then the slaves would come from either the balcony or the little designated spot that they were confined to in the sanctuary, and they would come last to the table and receive communion. Now, don't you hear these stories and wonder, now how can this be? How can this be? 200 years later, we look at this and we think, how could it be that Christians would think that that kind of separation within the church of Jesus Christ is okay? I mean, are we not all equal at the foot of the cross? Amen. We are. But as you consider that story, we have to consider this. We must consider the fact that we, in our present day circumstances, in America, in the church across the world today, that there's still yet division that exists in churches today. I mean, just ask anyone who's ever tried to get multiple churches to get with the same program or to be a part of the same, same event that was going to happen. It's incredibly difficult. It's next to impossible to get churches to agree and come together, even churches in the same community. You can't get us to lock arms. You can't get us to hold hands. It's unbelievable. We're going to read today out of Ephesians 2. I know that some of you have heard reports. Some of you are actually reading through Ephesians. Someone told me this morning that they listened to Ephesians six times this, this week uh, on the Bible app, which is a great thing. You can listen to the audio recordings of it. That's wonderful. I had another person tell me that they had read through the entire book of Ephesians this week. They were going to do the same thing this week. Keep reading it with us. There's vision for the church in the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 2 today. And as we look at Ephesians 2, the thing that we have to consider is this, is that as this chapter that the Apostle Paul presents to us addresses division in the church, we have to, if we're going to honestly come before God, ask this question, how, if in any way, is our church divided? 
I mean, we have to, don't you think? In all honesty, come before God and allow him through the Holy Spirit to examine us and say, okay, well, how is there division in our midst? Because if we are truly in Christ, if we are truly the church called by his name, then division should not be a part of who we are. That is what Paul is addressing in the book of Ephesians. It's what we're going to look at today. Now, let me tell you this. As we read Ephesians, you're going to see this. Paul is laying out an argument. The Apostle Paul has written this letter of Ephesians we're reading, and he lays out an argument. It's an emotional argument. It's a logical argument. And it's an argument for why there should not be division in the church of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for this? Go ahead and take your Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, if you have your, your phone or your iPad with you, open it up. The words will be on the screens. If you don't have those things, we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. Let's look at this passage as it lays out for us this argument about the problem that exists in the church, the solution that God has provided, and the power that is available to us, starting in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So here we are in verses 11 and 12. Paul gives us the problem that exists. And this problem exists between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, have you heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? <laughs> you heard about cowboys and Indians, right? You've certainly heard of Steelers Ravens. Okay, now you get it. You know what I'm talking about. This is a rivalry. It goes beyond a rivalry. This is a heated relationship. There is discord beyond what we can understand between these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Part of it's wrapped up in this, circumcision. Now that sounds kind of funny, that seems kind of odd to us, but listen, to the Jews, circumcision was a sacred practice, a deeply held practice that expressed to them outwardly a deeply held religious belief. What is that religious belief? That they are God's people. That they are God's people. And so this was something for them that they were very passionate about, the Jews being them. And they saw themselves as God's people and the Gentiles, and that's everyone else who's not a Jew. They saw everyone else as not being God's people, and therefore there was enmity. They were bitter rivals because of this. In fact, we know from archaeology that this was a very, very, very tense relationship. It's amazing. Archaeologists have discovered and uncovered all sorts of artifacts that tell us a lot about Bible times and Bible cultures. I have one to show you here today. This is called the Temple Court Inscription. Okay, and so in, the, in, in Solomon's Temple, there were different sections. There were sections where only Jews can go. There were sections where only Gentiles can go. And in the court of the Gentiles, as it was known as, where Gentiles could go, there were these signs etched in stone that were hung on the perimeter of the wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Let me tell you what this says. I have it written down here. 
The exact translation of that inscription that's right behind me is this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Hey, welcome to church, everyone. (laughs) I mean, can you believe this? This is historically known. The Jews hung this kind of signage in the temple court. That's how much they hated the Gentiles. We'll kill you if you come in here. That's how serious they were about this. It's sickening, isn't it? But this is what the human heart does. Listen to what the human heart does. The human heart takes the good gifts, the talents, the blessings, the strengths that God gives us, and the human heart, which is sinful, takes these gifts and makes them a source of pride. And then what do we do? We look down on other people who don't have those same gifts and strengths and talents. This is what the Jews were doing. They were God's people, and so they looked down on those who weren't God's people as far as they could tell. Now, we don't have signs like the temple court inscription in our churches today, but let me show you the kind of signs that you might see in America today. Take a look at this one. Here's a sign you might see in America. Church signs. I like these things. This is one of my hobbies, reading about these things. How about this one? Keep using my name in vain. I'll make rush hour longer. God. Love it. How about this one? Experts experts made the Titanic. Amateurs made the ark. Convicting, isn't it? Another one. Uh, I don't know why some people change churches. What difference does it make which one you stay home from? You know who I'm talking about, by the way, too. Welcome to church. Good to see you. Next one. Choose the bread of life or you are toast. <laughs> I'm going to use that communion rail next, next month for some of you. For scary into following Christ. Having trouble sleeping? We have sermons. Come here one. <laughs> Those are the kind of church, church signs you see today. But I wonder, are there church signs that we are posting that we're even unaware of? unwitting church signs. Church signs that aren't hung to be seen, but ultimately people recognize. You know what would be a good way for us to find out if there are church signs in our midst at Christ Church or Grove Farm? We can go ask our neighbors. What's our reputation? Would people say that, that Christ Church at Grove Farm is a place that, that people are welcome to come and be a part of the fellowship? Or would they say, you know, it seems like a place where it's a little bit closed off. It's a little bit of a country club. It's a little bit of a place where you have to be an insider. You got to dress a certain way or act a certain way. You got to be a certain kind of person to be a part of Christ Church. I don't know. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. We know this. We know this. America today, despite the fact that we're known as the United States, is more divided than it's ever been. We're divided based upon the way we dress, the way we look, our political affiliations, our street addresses, uh, the churches that we attend. And what's our answer? What's our culture's answer about this kind of division, this problem that we face? Well, we try more education. We try guilt trips on people. Well, listen, none of these will ever, ever, ever truly address the problem. You know why? Because the problem lies in us. The problem lives in us. It's our sinful nature. In fact, we would say this. As long as people wrestle with sin, 
then we will have disunity. It's a problem that is not going anywhere. So that sounds really depressing. You might be wondering, well, what do we do about this? What is the hope? Well, we get the solution from the Apostle Paul as we jump back into Ephesians 2, picking up in verse 13. Scripture says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There was literally a wall in the temple courtyards. And the scripture says he has demolished. He has eradicated. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, that's the Gentiles, and he came to preach peace to those of you who were near. In other words, both of you need Jesus. Both of you needed his grace and his salvation. For through him we have both access to the Father by one spirit. So what's the solution? Is it programs? Is it legislation? No. The resounding answer is this. The solution is Christ and his cross. That's the solution. I got a wasp up here. Um, coming after me, I'm preaching the word. Listen, the solution is that Christ and the cross has made one new humanity. Did you notice this? His purpose was to create himself one new humanity. The literal translation of these words is a new human race, a new people. Jesus, through his broken body, his shed blood on the cross, what was he accomplishing? A new family. He makes a new people, the Christians. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. It's a new human race. It's a new, it's a new people. Jesus is doing something much more than just trying to get us to make us get along. Jesus is building a kingdom, a family, a new humanity. This is what we are a part of. It blows your mind, doesn't it? This is incredible. And there's no division in this new family that we have in Christ. And so who do we have? We have a new identity, a new identity in Christ. You know, you might identify yourself as, as an American. You may identify yourself as Caucasian. You may identify yourself as African-American when you fill out the cards, whatever your race might be. You might identify yourself with a certain part of town You've got a last name. There's lots of ways we can identify ourselves. The Bible's not suggesting that no longer should you consider yourself to be African-American or Caucasian or to be a Girgo or to be a Smith or whoever you are. It's not taking away and stripping away your identity. It's just saying this, that we have a primary identity. And our primary identity is found in Christ Jesus. Everything else is secondary. We are one in Christ. We are a new humanity. It's a new family. And this new identity as a Christian is much deeper and more extensive in its connection 
than any other kind of identity we could have. It's a greater connection with other Christians beyond race and culture. It's a new humanity, a new people, a new nation. That's what we're a part of. So listen, the solution will never, ever, ever be social reformation. Instead, it takes soul reformation through Christ for us to have a solution to the problem of disunity. If there's disunity in this church, if there's disunity in your life, if there's disunity in your household, wherever you might go, that disunity, that lack of unity can only be solved through Jesus. Anything else is sinking sand. Are you with me? Let's keep going. Because what we see next is, Paul and his argument for us, remember this is an argument, logical, emotional, it's an argument for us. Paul lays out for us three illustrations to help us understand. He knows that we're slow, and so he gives us three illustrations to help us understand this very deep truth that he's putting before us. Let's keep on going in verses 19 through 21. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners. In other words, in light of what I'm saying to you, that you're a new humanity, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Quickly, let me give you these three illustrations because they will help us understand what we're a part of. The first one we get is this, is that we are fellow citizens. It says it in verse 19. We are fellow citizens. In Paul's day, in the Roman world, being a citizen was a very, very big deal. Look, you weren't a citizen of Rome just because you were born in a certain country. You were not a citizen of Rome just because you lived in a certain country. No, instead, citizenship was a special status given to only some, and had great benefits. So what Paul is saying to his audience here is he's saying, listen, you're citizens. All of you, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. The Jews were considered to be God's people no longer. We're all God's people. We're all citizens of his kingdom. That's the first illustration. Listen, we are citizens of the kingdom of God through Jesus. We're a part of his nation. Not only that, In verse 19, it goes on to say that we are members of his household. It talks about a house. We're members of his household. But it's not talking about the building in this case. It's talking about being a part of his family. We're not guests in the household of God. We're not servants in the household of God. We have been adopted as full-fledged family members. This is what Christ has done for us. All of us. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter any of those things. You know, there is a, there's a football player who plays for the University uh, of Ohio State. I said that backwards. I'm not a real big fan, as you can tell, of Ohio State. I totally hacked their name. He plays for Ohio State University. His name is J.K. Dobbins. He was one of their star players this year. Great running back. He's going to enter into the draft, probably be an early round draft pick. Um, great, great football player. Well, this fall, there was a story that broke about him. When his mother was 18 years old, she became pregnant with J.K. Dobbins. And as an 18-year-old girl, she didn't know what to do. She went to an abortion clinic. And she stood in that abortion clinic. Something happened to her. We would call it the power of the Holy Spirit. And she was convicted 
about the fact that this baby that was growing inside of her needed to live. And she walked out of that abortion clinic. Amazing. And she calls J.K. Dobbins her miracle baby. You know what God has done in that situation? Others like it. He has rescued a life. He's rescued a life and given it purpose and given it meaning. And that's what God has done for us. This is why we're so passionate about life around here. That's why Doug gets up here and shares these announcements. That's why we have these baby bottles here. We're passionate about people being rescued. You know why? We've been rescued. We've been rescued through God's grace. And he has made us a part of his family. And we want to see the same thing for other people. Amen? Amen. And listen, when you're a part of the family of God, your church is your family. You ever hear the saying, you can pick your friends, <laughs> but you can't pick your family. I left the part out intentionally. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, right? That's because we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And that means people who, who've been raised differently, people who have different levels of education, people who live in different neighborhoods, people of different races and social classes. You don't get to choose your family, but here's what we must do. We must love them. You know why we must love them? Because God has chosen all Christians to be a part of his family. And therefore, we're called to love them. There's one more illustration here that he uses in verse 20 and 21. And Paul expresses this family of God, this nation we're a part of. He expresses it as a holy temple. Now he moves to talk about a house in a different way. It's not a family now. Now it's actually the building he's talking about. And he talks about the foundation of the house. He says the house is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Well, why the prophets and the apostles? Here's what this means. The prophets spoke and preached to the old covenant. And the apostles spoke and preached to the new covenant. You know what this represents? The word of God. This is why we take the word of God so seriously. This is why we're so passionate about it. Because the church, God's holy temple, is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It's built on the word of God. Do you see it? We're passionate about this. And then he goes on to say that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the most important stone. In some translations, it means he's the capstone. He's the most prominent stone. And not only that, the church is a building. It's a building that's continuously being built. You're a part of it. I'm a part of it. We're a part of it. And we are a part of this building with billions of other Christians who live now all around the world and who've preceded us in the faith and who will come after us in the faith. We are a part of this building that is rising. And you know what? We are fastened together. It says, that, it says in the scripture that we are joined together. That is literally a translation that means we're fastened together. Like, like stones that have been carved perfectly to fit together with one another. You can't be a Christian that's a brick just laying on the ground by yourself. You're a part of the building. And you are fit just perfectly. You are carved just perfectly to fit with God's holy dwelling. So those are the illustrations that are used. You're a citizen you're a part of his household. You're a holy temple. But what does it all mean? Paul concludes his argument in verse 22, and I want to take you there now. Here's what he says. The great point in all of this. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling 
in which God lives by his spirit. You know, it strikes me that somehow Paul, aware that he was writing to the Ephesians, was also aware that he was writing to a greater audience. And it's almost as if he steps aside as he's talking to the the Gentiles and the Jewish believers, and he says this, and he goes, and you too. You too, Christ church. You too, American church. You too, church in 2020. You are being built together to become a dwelling what in which God lives by his spirit. Listen, the purpose for both this church and the church universal is not to be built for individual devotion. That you should be a Christian by yourself. That's not the point. We are built together with others. And we are living stones, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we are joined together to create something that's bigger than ourselves. It's not for our purposes. It's for his purposes. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle of Moses. That's where the presence of God was. And then they had, in in later times, the, the, the temple of King Solomon. And that's where the presence of God dwells. You know where the presence of God dwells now? in his holy church, in us. We are the dwelling place of the presence of God. You don't stand outside the temple and wonder what it must be like to experience God's presence. No, we are a part of the temple. We are both onlookers and participants in what God is doing in his congregations. We get to be a part of this. We form a temple for God to dwell in. And listen, the power of the church lies in the presence of God. And it fills his church, his people. We are his temple. God's desire for you is for you to be a part of this holy temple, his holy temple. That is who we are called to be. At Christ Church at Grove Farm, and in this city and in this world, we are a part of this dwelling that, that, that fill, is filled with the presence of God and manifests who he is to all the world. I want to go back to that church in Charleston, South Carolina. And I want to think about those African-American brothers and sisters who lived 200 years ago. I can only imagine that for some, there was a significant disconnect between what they were reading in the scriptures and what they were experiencing at the communion table. I mean, isn't communion an outward sign of our union with Christ? Isn't communion a sign of the fellowship we have with God through Christ and the fellowship we have with one another as brothers and sisters? We participate in the Lord's Supper together as a body, isn't it? I I can only imagine that yet, despite this, they looked at the evidence around them and they considered those who taught these principles about communion, about who God is and about Christ, but it was a concept that they, they uh, neither believed fully or practiced fully. But I can also imagine this, that they took comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ was one who was concerned with the feeding of 5,000 people. That Jesus Christ was the one who invited the poor to his table. That Jesus Christ was one who was criticized for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They took solace, they had to have, that they knew they were welcome at his table because he welcomed them. Listen, that same Jesus 
that we're talking about in the scriptures and the gospels is his presence that is with us. The presence of Christ in the church compels us. It informs our future. You want to know where this church is going? It's going wherever Jesus takes us. Because the presence of Christ compels us. And what does it compel us to do? It compels us to feed the hungry. The presence of Christ compels us to welcome sinners. It it compels us to tend to the poor. It compels us to commission unaltered. It It compels us to advocate for life and for redemption. This is who we're called to be. It's the presence of Christ in the church that compels us. And listen, my friends, this is much bigger than Sunday. God has called us to abundant life. John 10, 10. I have come to give them life and life to the full, abundant life. It is there for us in Jesus Christ because he fills the church. Here's how I want to end this. I've been thinking about this. I want to end this by giving us a way to signify that we are a part of the united body of Christ. And so here's what I would ask you to do as I prepare to pray for us. I would ask you to rise to your feet. And if you are a part, if you consider yourself in Christ, someone who wants to see division in the church eradicated fully, which is the purpose of Christ, if you are a part of the one new humanity, the human race that Jesus came to make through his body on the cross, then I would ask you to link arms with the person next to you as a sign that you are committed to being a part of this body, his body in Christ. And you may look over and you may see someone who's older than you. You may see someone who's younger than you. Some of you are going to see someone who's better looking than you. Listen, we are all one in Christ Jesus. None of those things matter. Our identity is in him first and foremost. So as we join those arms, let's pray together. Father in heaven, make us one. This is the prayer of Jesus in the garden. Make us one, Father, so that your glory and your renown will be known over all the earth. We pray, God, that your redemptive purposes would take hold in the church. We pray, God, that through even a body like this one here, Christ Church of Grove Farm, that you would use us, a unified people made of many different parts, people who have different backgrounds, that you'd use us for one holy purpose, knitting us together as a family so that Jesus will be known here in this city and around the world. God, we love you. We stand in solidarity with one another, and we proclaim the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.